in Exodus chapter 8. Thank you, Matt, the rest of the worship team for leading us. Welcome to every single one of you. You have been bold. You have braved the unknown. I tell you what, let me tell you, you made the right decision to be here in worship this morning, to lift up our hands, to lift up our voices, to give glory to God who deserves it for his amazing grace, especially through the work that God has done and offered to us through his son, Jesus, the work that was accomplished on the cross and in the tomb. We think of the cross and the tomb, and it's coming just a couple weeks, just a couple weeks. We'll celebrate Good Friday, we'll celebrate Easter Sunday, and we celebrate the reason that we gather in the name of a risen Savior, Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into a most interesting text this morning. Father, we thank you. I thank you so much for every single person that has come this morning into your house that we could gather and encourage one another and be encouraged. I pray, Lord, for those that are not able to be here but are listening now online. Father, I would ask that you'd minister encouragement and as we now dive and dig deep into your word, into some really interesting, to be honest, odd texts of Scripture, I pray, Lord, that you and your Spirit would illuminate and speak to our hearts and our lives. And Lord, my prayer is that we would leave the house of worship that you've called us to be in this morning. We would leave this place different change, knowing who you are in your majestic, sovereign supremacy. Father, I, I just plead for help. Please, may my words be your words. May everything that is said and done be for your glory. We ask this now in the amazing and wonderful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We have been involved, if you're just joining us for the first time, in a series in Exodus, um, what I call Exit to Promise and Purpose. We talk about the fact that the nation Israel has been suffering in bondage in Egypt, but God has raised up a deliverer whose name is Moses. It was wonderful to listen to Brandon preach and teach last week how he taught how God shows his power, God shows his supremacy, and his justice to everyone through some, what we would say, pretty intense and even impressive means. Specifically regarding the circumstances leading up to the first plague, what we call turning the Nile into blood. This is not just like water that's a little bit red of a tinge, okay, as a result of like the sand or the red silt. It's actually blood that is stinking, that is flowing, that is overflowing from every well and pitcher and pot in Egypt. But even before that, if you remember, there was a bit of a, what we could call a showdown of sorts. Pharaoh's magicians 
were doing some pretty impressive stuff. This is what happened. When Moses, who I call the muscle, told Aaron, the mouthpiece, to throw down his staff, it turned into a snake. And the magicians actually did it too. I'm sure for a moment that if you're one of those Egyptian magicians, you're like, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of running with the big boys here for a moment. But it didn't last long. Didn't last long because Moses' mighty snake ate up the other snakes. Magicians were doing some impressive stuff. God always does extraordinarily impressive stuff. That's what we're going to talk about. I thought it was something that Brandon got fast, fierce, killer cobras and, and, and the river into blood. And today, today I get frogs. And I get flies. He gets big, cool stuff. And we're talking about gnats this morning. So how, how did we, how did we get here? Okay? We have like blood. We have bugs. What's happening? You go all the way back to when Moses is standing before Pharaoh and he says this, let my people go. I call him Mr. Hardheart. Pharaoh, Mr. Hardheart has proven, proven true and it stems back, all of this stems back to Exodus chapter 5 in verse 2. And Pharaoh says this, remember this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? All of this, all of these plagues come as a result of who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? You know, that's really the same question that we ask today, that many people ask today. Pharaoh is either what? Very, very modern, or we are very ancient. You see, there's nothing offensive to believe in God. The Egyptians believed in multiple gods. The Israelites certainly believed in God. The problem is, there's not a problem to believe in God unless that God actually tells us and instructs us how we are to live. That's what many people cannot handle today. We have 3.1% of our population in America who identifies as atheists. 3.1% of people in America say there is no God. It's actually a very small percentage, but it's a very, very vocal minority. Which means what? There's just under 97% of people who actually want God. 97% of people want God. They want to pray to God to what? Get them out of jams. Pray to God to what? Keep us safe. Don't, 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 don't let us get sick. Pray to God to what? Pass the test. Not strike out. Don't drop the ball. We just don't want a God that tells us how we are to live. No one wants a God to tell us how we are to live. Instead, what happens is that we actually seem to identify with, or we want to identify, with William Ernst Henley, who wrote this, and I quote, <clears throat> it, it matters not how straight the gate, 
how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Tattooed that on a big muscled arm. That's, that stuff sounds good. That stuff sells well today, doesn't it? I am the captain of my soul. You, you add a little music that bumps behind that, okay, and flash some pics up of a cool-looking guy or a beautiful woman, a nice car, working out in the gym and six-pack abs, that stuff, I am what? I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. That's what people want today. And you realize that is a bunch of bunk. Statements like that are man-centered nonsense. I have a lot of proof that will tell you right now I am the master of nothing. Neither are you. You, you, got a, you got a cool car? Well, you got a cool car because like, you worked and you saved. You're not the you're not the master of your fate. You worked hard. You're you're like you got the six pack abs and like you're healthy and strong. It's because you probably ate right or went to the gym. You're still going to die. You are not the captain of your soul. We have before us. We have four chapters. Four chapters of scripture: Exodus eight, nine, ten, and eleven where we will see with repeating emphasis God's power over you, over me, over all mankind. We will see God's power over nature. We will especially see God's power over anything that seeks to elevate itself as a what? As a lowercase g God in our lives. We will see repeated emphasis, what, of false confessions. We'll see repeated emphasis of an ever-hardening heart with an underlying theme that is really the answer to a previous question. This thing is bugging me. I am not the master of the mic even this morning. What happens is that there is a a question that is asked in scripture, who is, did my ear move this week or what? It's the same one. I, I'm, I'm okay, that's okay. It's me, it's all me. I'm okay, back off. <clears throat> There's a question that is asked, Pharaoh asked this, we ask the same question, who, who, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? There's actually the answer to the question, and we see this as a theme in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. We see it listed in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. Here it is, that you will know that I am the Lord. Repeated statements, you will know that I am God. You will know that I am God. Let, let's go to scripture and get, let's get a glimpse here of this. From Exodus chapter 8, we pick it up in verse 1. <clears throat> <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile, the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. What I find is interesting is that <clears throat> whenever in Scripture you, you hear Egypt, you always hear about them going down to Egypt. All the way back to Joseph in Genesis 39, they went down to Egypt. Genesis chapter 46, the brothers went down to Egypt. Whenever you go down, you go south, right? We, we were actually down south just this past week, and we noticed that people, people down, down south aren't talking, they're talking, they're not walking, they're walking. And so that's, that's right. So, so as I was thinking about this, the second plague we have, here it is, we got frogs a-jumping. That's what we have. You're down south. You got frogs a-jumping, just as the Egyptians had worshipped snakes. We saw that last week. Just as we saw the Egyptians worship the Nile and literally hundreds of others, other gods. They worshipped frogs. <clears throat> one goddess, her name was Heket, had the head of a woman with the body of a frog, and she supposedly controlled the frog population and also assisted women in childbirth. Therefore, frogs were sacred, and, and the rule was, the law was, you could not kill a frog. So God, in full power supremacy and justice says this you, you 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 want frogs you want to worship frogs i will give you frogs like you've never seen before it's really in all honesty what i would say it's kind of a humorous it's a funny miracle because frogs are not dangerous Frogs are not scary. Frogs are not creepy. Unless what? Unless you have hordes. They're everywhere. Put your cereal in the bowl in the morning and there's a frog in the bowl. You brush your teeth, there's a frog in the sink. You, you, you go to bed and there's frogs in your blankets. It becomes what? It becomes terrifying. Remember Alfred Hitchcock, 1963, the, the horror movie Birds? Like, there's nothing really that frightening about a bird unless there's like hordes of them. I know people today, when they still see like a flock of birds, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Same idea here. 
It's interesting is that the Egyptian magicians, it says this, by their secret arts, hear me on this, I believe at some level there's demonic influence or demonic capability that is given here. Egyptian magicians, by their secret arts, also made frogs to come up on the land, which again would be pretty impressive. The problem is this, they actually just contribute it. And made a, a problem, a bad problem, worse. Because they clearly, they could make frogs, but they could not get rid of them. And so this so-called magic, just like the enemy, what? Oh, oh, I can do this too. The enemy oftentimes will make what appears to be something impressive actually worse, more dangerous. I want you to know this, that God is directing even greater attention to these false gods. Why? So that he is intentionally humiliating those that ever choose to worship a frog. Obviously, it had been a pretty horrible experience, so much so that Pharaoh apparently pretty quickly makes an about face and says this, plead with the Lord and take away the frogs from my people and I will let you go. Verse 8. We know that it, what was not sincere, as soon as the Lord removes the frogs, when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them. It says in verse 15. Which begins what? A, a, another painful cycle. Or first we have what? The, the, the Nile being turned into blood. We have frogs jumping. Number three, we have gnats, gnats a crawling. Exodus 8, down to verse 16. Words will be in front of you. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And and they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast, all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, some of you are like, I'm not quite sure, what, what's, what's a gnat? I actually looked it up. I wanted to be prepared. Officially, it is defined as this, an annoying insect. It's just what? It's a tiny little bug that oftentimes bites Many think this may be, in some translations, actually the old King James Version actually uses the term lice. Automatically, people start itching. Either way, think of this. Think about we're in an arid desert climate, an arid desert environment in Egypt, where you you pick up a handful of sand, desert everywhere, of dust, and, and what? And you sift it through your fingers and automatically all of the dust is numbered as what? A, a, a number that you can't even count. Of gnats or lice. Imagine a little Johnny playing in the sandbox. Actually, we're in, e- in Egypt. It would be like little Mentu playing in his sandbox. 
And, and he comes running into the house. And what? Covered. In his little, in his little bucket. With his little shovel. There's literally what? There's nuts everywhere. Everywhere. On clothes. Crawling. Ever, ever kick an anthill before? I'm probably going to get in trouble for, there's probably a rule or a law. No kicking. And I lived in the country and you're just bored. It's an anthill, let's kick it. What happens when you kick an anthill and you look at it and like all of a sudden it's, it's almost like you have a hard time. Like it's, your eyes don't even seem to adjust. It's just so much movement. The sheer number. And again, it's like, it's creepy, it's terrifying. I cannot imagine it's not just there, it's everywhere. The closest I can ever think about was gnats and later a plague of flies, this whole swarming idea. Have you ever experienced something like that before? I used to pastor up in Maine, in northern Maine. And shock, um... People die in northern Maine just like people die in Pennsylvania. And what's interesting is that if people die anywhere from like the end of November into December all the way through March, um, you have a funeral service, but the ground is frozen, so you can't bury them. And so, so they just, forgive me, they just kind of like cold storage people for a couple months until what the ground thaws. And by around the 1st of April, as a pastor, you start to get calls. Can you do this burial? Can you do this committal service? And you have many of those. But what's interesting is that the first part of April in Northern Maine is also what black fly season. They actually refer to it as swarming season. Where there's like a two, three week window that just happens to be when everyone's outside burying every, that, that you have to be out there. And I remember on numerous occasions, at a burial service or a committal service during swarming season. I remember the people, the family, the loved ones would just stay in their cars. They just cracked the window down a little bit. And I remember me and the funeral director, the only two outside. And literally, as I'm trying to read, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, literally, like you know what it's like, they're flying in your ears, up your nose. Literally, they're in your mouth. They're everywhere. You're just trying to like, you just get this done and get out as fast as possible. Horrible. Suffocating. Take that multiplied by many, many times. That's what the Egyptians were facing. Notice as well that the magicians here were now unable to duplicate or to replicate the signs. <clears throat> it says in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. Hey, hey we, we can do this too. They tried. Verse 18 of Exodus chapter 8, by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Instead, what's happening to magicians, oftentimes they were also priests who, what, who, who, who knew that they couldn't touch. Touching an insect would defile them, would dirty them. They bathed, these magicians and priests, they bathed religiously. They bathed ritualistically. And so what? 
Rather than we can't touch bugs because they're unclean, God has what? Through extraordinarily impressive means, says you want to worship a gnat, they're everywhere, crawling. It's what? It's humiliating to these magicians. So much so that by the time you get to verse 19, the magicians actually admit to Pharaoh that says what? This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. But still, no repentance. We got frogs a-jumping, we got gnats a-crawling. Number four, the fourth plague, we have flies a-swarming. Jump down with me to verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. And also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. So that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Verse 24, and the Lord did so. There came great Swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. We're not told how long the whole gnat thing, the lice thing, we're not told how long it lasted or did it end. But now there are what? There's even more little tiny creatures that are doing God's bidding. They're under his control. We have, even through flies, the sovereignty of God on display. Usually when we think of the sovereignty of God, we think of what? A majestic sunrise. Or what? At night, the scintillating stars. The, the mountains, we think of what the apex predator in, in nature or the soaring eagle. That's what we tend to think of when we think about the sovereignty of God. Here we have flies. We don't think it's the common house fly. We don't know exactly what God or precisely what God is being targeted here, but it seems to have been the God Kefir. Kefir, K-E-P-H-E-R, referred to as the God of resurrection, which was depicted as a flying beetle or a scarab, which is a large flying dung beetle that was oftentimes actually depicted as a carving or as a relief that archaeologists have dug up on monuments in ancient Egypt. In ancient Egyptian religion, the sun god Ra <clears throat> is seen to roll across the sky each day, transforming bodies and souls. Beetles of the scarab family roll dung into a ball 
as food. And then they use it as a brood chamber in which to lay their eggs. This way, when the larvae hatch, they are immediately surrounded by food. And for these reasons, the scarab was seen as a symbol of this heavenly cycle and the idea of rebirth or regeneration. Enter God. The one true, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. I am who I am. Remember this, you will know who I am. Enter God who says, you want to replace me, the, the giver, the, the creator, the sustainer of all of life with a bug that rolls up balls of poop. I can't believe I said that word. You, you want to replace me. God is saying, you want that, then you can have that. You can have lots and lots of that. What's interesting is that these plagues repeated, these cycles, are, are what are referred to as decreation. Remember that term. Plagues are referred to as decreation. It is a reversal of creative order. Instead of order being created out of what? Out of nothingness or order created out of chaos, there's actually disorder that is being produced from order. Think of the Egyptians here for a moment. They believed that Pharaoh was what? Was a god. That Pharaoh had the power to maintain order in their cosmos, or what they referred to as their mots. But we know as believers that there is only one God. The one true God who creates and sustains all order, Colossians chapter 1, it's written at the bottom of your notes. Hold on to this. It says this, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Note as well the new pattern here. Again, there's no counterfeits that are produced. Why? Because, because they could not produce such extraordinary chaos like God himself can produce. It is designed to be gross upon gross upon gross. Why? Remember this. God will do whatever is necessary to get your attention. Any, any chaos in your life? Think, think for a moment that, that, that with this swirling, swarming chaos, it seems like wherever we go, that God may actually be trying to get your attention to reveal to you what maybe there's a lowercase g. Maybe there's a, a God in your life that ought not be there. Maybe there's an idol 
in your life. And maybe there's something that you, right now, this minute, this moment, this day, this morning, you need to listen to God who's trying to get your attention. Maybe there's something that you need to obey that you've not been obeying. Maybe there's something that you need to submit to that you've not been submitting to. God, as a sovereign God, is in complete control of every part of the universe around us. The fifth plague and the final one we'll look at this morning, Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Same cycle. If you refuse to let them go and still behold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Verse 5, and the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. The next day the Lord did this thing and all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel. The fifth Plague, livestock, a dying. This particular plague really does not seem to need much explanation. When it says in verse 6 that all livestock died, it means it translates in Hebrew for simple understanding, all the livestock died. This means horses fell over dead, cows, sheep, and goats, all of them dead. These are huge animals that are dead and rotting in the Egyptian hot desert sun. Think about the stink. Think about the stink. You ever, you ever drive down the road and your windows are down and, and you go by some like roadkill and you're like, oh man. And like you hold your breath because you know it's just going to be like, just, just, just go a little faster, we'll be by this. You can't do that. There is no end you can't just drive past the rotting corpses. Everything, everything is reeking and rotting. And then and, and what's associated or what's connected to how much harder life is going to be without the livestock. There is no fresh milk from the cows. There's no fresh milk from the goats. There's no oxen to pull the wagon. You can't ride your horse to school. There's no lamb to eat. There's no veal, there's no beef, there's no food to eat. Life is miserable. Why? Like, how, how long will this last? What's the lesson here for all of this? There is a plague of problems. There are a matter of judgment on Egypt's false gods. All of which makes a critical point. He alone is God. He alone is God. God will do whatever is necessary to get your attention. Why? So you will know that I am Yahweh. There will come a moment, there will come a moment for every single one of us when life ends as we know it here on this earth and we stand before the Lord. We know that He is a holy God set apart in his holiness, and that we are unholy. And yet God loved us so much, he offered his son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sin, your sin on the cross, that if we put our faith in his full finished work and accept him as Savior and submit and obey to him as Lord, then what? 
then when we stand before the Lord, he will say what? You come, you enter, or what? Depart from me because I never knew you. Theme all the way through that you may know. The, 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 the point of the plagues here, the fact is that you and I too can very easily, what, face the temptation to bowing down to false idols. You and I do that today, to false gods. Think about how silly, really, how dumb is it to worship a frog or a gnat? Reminds me in the Psalmist 115, Psalm 135, they're idols, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And yet people today are worshiping that little phone. It, it is under your pillow when you sleep at night. It is the first thing that you grab in the morning. They worship. They spend more time on that than anything else. A silly gnat can be worshipped. So can a silly phone. A sport. Fleeting and fun. Fun. For a moment, clothes, appearance, success, car, a house, or what? Or another person. You, you can even take another person. Oh, I'm, I'm instructed to love, and so I've put that. But you love that person so much that they actually, what? They're taking the place of God in your life. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You realize in just a few short chapters, Moses will be much older, and with his staff, he will ascend and he will climb to the top of Mount Sinai. And the Lord will descend, and the Lord will carve on stone tablets Basic instructions teaching us how to live. And number one, at the top of the list, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. In my office, literally, I can almost touch them, almost. On my right-hand side, I keep the words of the Ten Commandments, and at the very top, you shall not have any other gods before me. Why? Because I know I can do that. I can do that. I can, I can bow and worship before a bug rolling a ball of poop. It's that easy. And so can you. What do we do very quickly, finally? I know we're long. This is important. Admit the fact that we have a tendency to replace put other things in place of our worship but the one true God. Just admit it. Like you're not fooling anybody. I'm sorry. There isn't like one perfectly glorified person that's here. Secondly, confess to God what those idols are. Pray, pray, Lord, reveal it to me. What is it? Admit it and confess it. Third, ask God to guard your heart from worshiping these false gods. And finally, ask God to guard your mind and your mouth from what these brief moments that we have. Oh, Lord, you're the one. And then we turn on a dime and our hearts are hardened. All of this, we're learning what not only about us, we're not only learning about God, we're not only learning about how to live. In this particular context, we're learning about a man whose name was Pharaoh who had everything, all the might and money and power 
prestige in all of the world. And we will see with Pharaoh, even with all of that, he goes nowhere fast. He goes nowhere fast. Don't miss the message. You don't try to mess with the Almighty God. Father, we love you. We just pray for your help as we seek to be obedient to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.